I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty-gritty so you can appear like an interesting and or idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... George Harriman and Crazy Cat. Who was George Harriman? Well, he was often considered one of the most influential American cartoonists of the 20th century. Harriman was the creator of the long-running comic strip Crazy Cat, a surreal and innovative series which attracted the attention of intellectuals and critics alike. He was also a humble, self-effacing man who kept his personal life largely out of the public eye. Despite this privacy, however, the body of work he created can be read as a private journal of sorts, documenting the emotional burdens which hung heavy on his conscience, knowing that he would lose his livelihood if his true racial background was ever discovered. Act 1. A Life in Black and White Amongst the various characteristics which have come to define humankind, perhaps none are as ubiquitously revered or romanticized as our capacity for artistic creation. We, as a species, create a lot of stuff. It's practically the main thing we do aside from maintaining homeostasis. Everything we make can be seen as inherently artistic so long as there are other conscious beings around to reflect upon them. And viewing the world around us in such a way saturates our lived experiences with a certain unmistakably human charm. The abundance of artistic output can, in some ways, be seen as a byproduct of all the other things that make us human. We are deeply social creatures with brains wired to observe, think critically, and communicate our way through any assortment of inputs we receive. Yes, these processes evolved to aid in our prolonged survival, but consciousness of this magnitude was always doomed to compel us to create things in other, more abstract ways. We absorb the culture around us like sponges and feel compelled to spit out our responses to and reinterpretations of said data. We make art to convey profound philosophical ideas or to make strangers in a podcast Facebook group laugh. And other times still, we create things in an attempt to make the complicated thoughts and emotions in our heads tangible when our brains or circumstances won't let us articulate them in any way. Nonetheless, it doesn't matter what you make and it doesn't matter why. The act of creating anything thrusts you into a dialogue with the culture around you. Your creations are inherently linked to a specific time, place, and the complicated web of influences which shape your specific perspective. Furthermore, all your influences represent a fragment of another person's story all building upon one another in a conversation as old as time, at least as far as humans are concerned. Even if you don't consider yourself an artist or a creator of some sort, you might relate to the feeling of looking back at an old thing you made and with so much time having passed, being able to see how exemplary that thing is of that particular era of your life. Like reading an old essay and realizing how the cadence of your writing was clearly attempting to emulate the writing style of the books you liked at the time, or realizing how certain stylistic elements of your childhood doodles were clearly influenced by cartoons you grew up with. We inherently put a lot of ourselves and our experiences into our work, whether intentional or not. We imbue our creations with abstract, disjointed fragments of our life stories and cast them out into the cultural ether for someone else to pick apart and reconstruct if they so please. Often these bits of culture we produce are all we leave behind, outliving us and most likely losing bits of context in the process. 
However, sometimes a single fragment of unknown context is discovered, which reshapes how the work is perceived henceforth. Spandrew, do you remember the first thing that you made? Like the first thing that you actually like created by yourself? Yes, I think. I, I if, if there's something that happened before this, I'm blanking on it. But the the, the early, I mean, I, I, I used to draw, I, I have no specific memory. I used to draw stuff all the time. But I don't remember any specific thing that I ever drew. There's no like thing like, oh, I drew this and it was the first thing. The, the first concrete thing I remember was that I wrote a short story called The Haunted Museum. And it was basically just a Goosebumps ripoff thing. Um, it was it was maybe like 10, 15 pages. And it was very much just in the style of a Goosebumps book. And it was about a kid and his friends who go to a museum and there's like a weird month like there's like a wax there's a wax statue of this like weird monster and they're confused about what it is because the museum is like a it's like a it's a, a natural history museum so it's all like real animals like statues of real animals and stuff like that but then there's this weird like creature that's like a monster that's not real and they're like confused about why it's there because it's not a real animal. And then they like ask what it is. And then like the museum curator or the, the museum director is like confused about what they're talking about. And he's like, there's no, that's not here or whatever. And so they're like, what? And then the thing comes to life and they get locked in the museum and it chases them around. And then they defeat it by playing a tuba for some reason. <laughs> Like that, that was, that was the resolution was they play a tuba and that it like kill. I think it was probably inspired by like Mars attacks. Like it like makes it go crazy. And then it, it turns back into a wax statue or something like that. Um, I'm pretty sure that's like the earliest thing I can remember having made creatively. That's like, I have a specific memory of what it was. I, um, helicopter. Oh my God. You built a helicopter. That was your first creation. Yeah. I built a helicopter. Can you believe it? The first thing I think I remember making is, I mean, I've, I've drawn ever since I was a little kid, like really, really young, but I, I, I had these like, it was like a stencil. It was like a blue stencil of like a silhouette of like a blocky figure, almost kind of like a Lego silhouette, but it wasn't a Lego thing. And I was, I would trace that onto a piece of paper. So I'd trace the silhouette and then I would add guns or pirate hat or pants or whatever onto the silhouette and i would make these little stories where i would like have the various little silhouette people like be fighting each other or going on adventures or whatever and <laughs> my mom tells this story where one time i i came into the kitchen like really early in the morning and i was like crying i was probably like maybe five or so maybe four i don't remember but i was really young and i was crying and she was like what's the matter what's the matter and i was like I don't think I'm ever going to be able to draw without using this stencil. How am I going to be an artist one day if I only can draw using this stencil? She was like, I, I think you'll probably figure out a way to do it without the stencil. I'm like, no, I need the stencil. Yeah. So I drew, I drew like, I filled up books, like whole books of these weird stories of just like pirates and spaceship guys and whatever with those stencil drawings. George Joseph Harriman III was born in 1880 in New Orleans, Louisiana. He came from a family of French-speaking mixed-race Creoles. Documentation shows that they were considered free people of color. 
His parents and grandparents were reportedly very active in the early abolitionist movement and were surrounded by others who supported black rights movements throughout the late 1800s. New Orleans had become a hub of free black activism for voting rights at the time, and the Harrimans found themselves at the center of it. They were involved with an integrated Masonic lodge and were friends with the founders of the first black-owned daily newspaper in the country, the New Orleans Tribune. His parents distributed tickets to political rallies out of their tailor shop in the French Quarter, and perhaps most significantly, Biographers have found that his father and grandfather both signed a petition demanding voting rights, which was hand-delivered to Abraham Lincoln by friends of the Harrimans. And you know, this, this whole thing is kind of is kind of just dark, super dark and sad because there was a there was a lot of like black activism activity going on in New Orleans. Um, I mean, there was all over the country for sure, but like there was this, there was a lot of activity at this time in a pre-slave abolition United States. But the reason why was because, as we'll get into with 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 George Harriman, is because these these particular people of color in this area almost like had more of a of a privilege of like protesting and and fighting for black rights and being black activists because they were able to kind of pass as white, which is like incredibly it's that's so fucked up it's like you you can like even then even when you're like fighting for rights and slave abolition you can only do it because people kind of think you're white nonetheless george was still growing up in the post reconstruction south a time of incredible violence largely on behalf of white mobs inciting racial skirmishes which sometimes devolved into full-blown riots though some gains towards desegregation were made during the initial reconstruction Many were lost during the Jim Crow era. While a lot of detail is unknown about his family's experience at this time, it seems likely that these rising racial tensions would play a role in the family's decision to relocate to Los Angeles when George was about 10 years old. Having left a vibrant POC community and support network behind, the Harrimans reinvented themselves as white Americans in California, a decision common amongst lighter-skinned mixed-race people in an effort to improve their social standing and survive in white society yet a decision that would conflict and isolate George for his entire life. Yeah, and uh, you know, we don't have to get too much into this like we're here to talk about the the life and career of George Harriman and obviously some of this stuff is going to be you know, incorporated into that um uh but yeah, the during this time, you know, if you really if really looking back at the history of these things, it's really kind of shocking to see uh, I, I think a lot of us intuitively understand this, but when you really look back at the history of the of like just the concept of whiteness and like what it sort of meant during this time in like the early 1900s through the 1940s, as there was a lot of immigration happening and people were coming to the quote unquote, you know, land of opportunity. Um, the fact that, you know, being white is not really there's it's not a culture it's not really an actual race it's just kind of like a a a it, it's like a, it's like a a tool of oppression where basically like you can be if you're white you are like in the elite crowd of people who are treated like human beings and if you're not white then you are second class citizens and so there are all these different um uh, ethnic groups who are basically like fighting to become considered white and some people just couldn't do that because you know they just they just did not e even remotely resemble being white but then there were some people that could kind of 
it, they could they could become white because they were adjacent to what but like even a, that even even that like most people don't have the resources to move across the fucking country cut off all your friends and family or at least downplay those connections while you establish new roots in a new place in order to soft reboot your life or a really hard reboot your life you know yeah um, i'm just like i am now white whatever whatever like this this concept of just like i've I've made it into this upper echelon of social class and now I can be treated like a normal human being. But the trade-off is that you just, you lose all connection with your own culture. Like everybody who has become white is just, you, you have no culture anymore. You're completely, you have to like sever yourself from your culture in order to be part of this group. And a lot of people at this time in the, in the early 1900s did that. And so now we're a people who just don't have a culture because our ancestors severed themselves from it in order to be a part of this group of people in order to be a part of a power dynamic that wouldn't oppress them <laughs> and i i think it's also like we're going to talk a lot about this in the episode but that idea of otherness of race as a construct of gender as a construct of um trying to appease a power structure while also being guilty about being assimilated into that power structure while hating the power structure while also understanding that that power structure has given you a life is all throughout George Harriman's work. Like you can't say that about many cartoonists and you definitely can't say that about many comic strip illustrators from the time period that he was active. But as we're going to discuss, like he, he stands head and shoulders above a lot of people. Yeah. And I, and I think we'll, we'll get into it later on, but like, Honestly, if if you're unfamiliar with Crazy Cat or maybe you just have seen a little bit of it or whatever, I think I think if you really dug into some of the times whenever George Harriman like touched on racial issues, I think your your mind might be blown at like during this time in in the during this time period in the country. I don't think that a lot of people think that things were being discussed in this way and some of some of the racial like commentary and satire that he was able to like get away with in Crazy Cat, I think it you know I just I think that an average person would look at that and be like, oh my god, like I, I I just never thought that people were talking about race in this way during this time. You have a specific idea of what happened back then, and even the- now, like if you look at some of the stuff with Crazy Cat and Ignatz, it and their interactions and how those interactions evolve over time and what those interactions represent metaphorically, uh. I think at its surface, it's very one dimensional of like, it's a fucking cat and a mouse with a brick. And they're drawn in a very crude style sometimes. I mean, it's it's elegant, but it's elegant in the way that a power chord is elegant, where it can be written off as low or trash culture. But once you understand the inner workings of it, um, it immediately develops a, a deeper resonance, no pun intended. Um, and the uh, the significance of Ignat's and Crazy Cat, their relationship, and how it plays out in the strip, I don't think it can be overstated. I think it's influenced... I think a lot of people, in, especially in mainstream comics now, aren't really particularly aware of Crazy Cat in a tragic way. Like, I think it's kind of just like, oh, yeah, yeah, George Harriman. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, he, he's, he was kind of like Charles Schultz before they made all those animated stuff out of the Peanuts characters, right? It's like, a, it was like Peanuts 1.0 or whatever, right? It's like cute, and there's like an animal, and it was like really popular or whatever. Um... But it's it's so much more than that. And uh, the fact that the 
the fact that one of the preeminent independent comics awards is called the Ignatz Award, I think, uh, you know, should, it says it all right there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, probably a lot of people have no idea what this, what Crazy Cat is, never heard of George Harriman, and yet, like, what it was the Comics Journal, like, ranked it as the number one yeah. most influential comic of the 20th century. Yeah, Like, exactly. abo- above all else. Yeah, like, like William, William Randolph Hearst personally was just like, uh, here's a lifetime salary. Just keep making the comic. Even after, even after it stopped selling and like didn't make any money, really, Hearst, like that guy was a piece of shit. But you know what? I I can kind of I can kind of forgive some of it because he just cut Harriman a blank check and was just like, keep making Crazy Cat for as long as you want to make it. Skipping ahead in the story for a second, this is probably the best time to reiterate that all this was unknown to the public during Harriman's career. It wasn't until 1971, almost three decades after his death that a sociologist by the name of Arthur A. Berger would... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why that was funny to me. I don't... It's it's not that funny of a name, but for some but reason... But it's, it's almost a sentence, though. Yeah, Arthur A. Berger. A sociologist by the name of Arthur A. Berger would uncover a scrap of Harriman's family history while doing research for an entry on Harriman in the Dictionary of American Biography. Berger obtained Harriman's birth certificate from the New Orleans Board of Health, only to find that his race was listed as, quote, colored. This, of course, confused people and led to a resurgence of interest in his work and himself as a figure, since he had been largely forgotten by the general public by this time. Further research found that the 1880 census of New Orleans listed his parents as, quote, mulatto. And over the years, biographers would continue to delve deeper into his family's history and interview any living person they could find that knew Harriman in life. Despite this, however, we still only know bits and pieces of his personal life, like how he always wore a hat to hide his hair texture or that people referred to him as Greek simply because his friend and fellow cartoonist Tad Dorgan nicknamed him the Greek after not knowing what else he possibly could be. We're, we're going to get into this and, you know, this is all premature, but just, you know, going back to the idea of being stripped of your culture and kind of divorcing yourself from your heritage and everything about you as a as a person um, in order to like be accepted into this fake group of people, um, you know, so you can be treated like a human being. Um, you know, what makes it even sad, more sad is this idea. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with Henry Darger of this idea of like not find not not being given love until after he was dead. Um, he sought it for his entire life and then was only given it posthumously um that this is this also just strikes me as is kind of crushingly sad to not have any have anybody know your identity until you're dead yeah like yeah yeah to really like and that's it that's interesting you phrase it that way because i kind of hadn't thought of the lens of crazy cat as a i mean obviously i don't want to say too much because we're going to talk about the strip a lot later but like a quest for a cultural understanding of oneself is a pretty apt yet pithy logline for the the strip. Like it really is Harriman looking inside and examining what am I? What are these labels that have been given to me? Do I agree with them? You know, there's a there's a very famous Crazy Cat strip where they and them where Crazy Cat and Ignatz are standing next to each other, and Ignatz goes Crazy Cat. I've noticed in some of these strips, which is also meta right there, that the characters are aware that they're in a comic strip. And uh, Ignatz goes, Crazy Cat, I've noticed that in some of these strips, you're referred to as she. And Crazy Cat goes, yes, that's true. And then 
Ignatz goes, and then I've noticed in other strips, you're referred to as he. And Crazy Cat's like, yes, that's true. And then Ignatz goes, why is that? And Crazy Cat says something to the effect of like, that's life. And it's like a pithy little like, but it's also exactly what we're talking about right now. Yeah. And that, that, that I, the way that you can explore that in specifically like that's kind of that's that's a once again something that you might have your mind blown to find out that somebody was discussing gender in this way, even if it's in kind of a joke, you know, at that time. Like, I don't think I just you wouldn't think that that's like in your mind. You're like, yeah, they didn't they didn't talk about the spectrum of gender back in the 1920s or whatever. Um, and it's and I, I think many people would have their mind blown. I, I think that happens a lot. I think sometimes you read old books and you're kind of shocked by how contemporary some of it seems where you're just like, I just I just I never thought of the fact that people would be talking this way back in the 20s or the 1800s or whatever. Um, and I and I it's, it's interesting that also I think a part of it is that then and maybe even now, well, not now, because everything everything about this is so politicized that people would just freak out if they even sniffed any discussion of gender being discussed in anything. And if, it, especially if it was in a comic, they would say that they would accuse somebody of like trying to indoctrinate children or whatever. But like prior to that, prior to this politicization, politicization of this, um, the like comics is kind of like the perfect medium to discuss these things because you can talk about these things in a way that's a little bit of agnostic of trying to make some kind of sociological point. And you can kind of discuss these things, these things freely and fluidly without having any kind of preconceived notions put upon them. And I and it's and it's fascinating because I, I I was just I just was seeing something the other day where somebody I forget what it was, but somebody was talking about the fact that Mickey Mouse is not a real mouse. He's a cartoon character that looks like a mouse. And I and something about that just like I just never thought about it that way before. But cartoon characters are just truly free because of the because of the 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 world that a cartoon character exists in they're completely free of any kind of rule or preconceived notion of what it means to be what they are they you know you make a movie and you have human actors and no matter what you do it's a person and they have some kind of particular identity and it, there's a bunch of context and preconceived notions attached to that so it's really hard to kind of like depoliticize a human being when you're trying to talk about something or you're trying to convey something with a with a human body. Um, and it's kind of the same thing with like a book or any or even like music. There's all but like a, a cartoon character. It's it, it, it's it's like agnostic to any kind of preconceived notion. And in that way, you can kind of discuss anything freely in a way that's like truly which i I, it's funny because i agree with you in a modern context that's true but i think that's only true because of the history of cartoon characters and how they come directly from minstrelsy and how they're deeply rooted in an american ideal of racism you know and like because all of that negative almost traumatic imagery has been kind of like commodified and then our culture tried to do away with it so there are these weird little vestiges of things that are in cartoon characters that are directly related to minstrelsy like specifically 
you I mean I know you know this but I'm saying it more yeah the white gloves that Mickey and so many cartoon characters wear are because Walt Disney liked minstrel shows and he thought it helped draw attention to the ex- the hand of a character which made it more expressive which made the audience key into it and understand what the emotions of the characters were in a way that was not just the facial expressions or the body language of the character and um I think because these because of the almost kind of like information matrix that cartoon characters had to be at one point because they had to smuggle all of these horrific racist icons into the broader culture and like wink wink nudge nudge like steamboat willie's just a mouse he's definitely not a you know small diminutive blackface caricature that all of us white people are laughing at he's a mouse because that paradigm existed for so long and now Thankfully, much of the racist baggage that a lot of those anthropomorphized cartoon characters. And I think that's another specific thing is like there's a difference between a character that is a cartoon or an animated character and what I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you're talking about, which is an anthropomorphized cartoon character, Um, you know, a hybrid of a a human and an animal um, in a caricatured, bizarrely anatomy featured way. Um, I think that the the fact that those characters worked as vessels for hatred and bigotry for so long have now, thankfully, that the the negative energy of that is gone, but they still act in our cultural psyche as vessels for ideas that can be elaborate. Yeah, for sure. And 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 it also makes it interesting, you know, with everything that you just said, that you know George Harriman even back then could take that and utilize it to actually discuss these racial issues in a way that like as i said before i think would blow people's minds to see that being discussed in that context at that time yeah 100 percent. in some ways and it hadn't occurred to me right now but in some ways crazy cat is the anti mickey mouse you know they were kind of cultural contemporaries they were around roughly the same time period but mickey mouse was using these minstrel things to almost kind of like culturally sneak racism into the mainstream where uh in a way that i don't think most people were even aware of especially after the steamboat willie era you know you know oswald the lucky rabbit and shit like those are kind of a different breed no pun intended than you know mickey mouse and friends you know the animated tv show in the fucking 60s or whatever it's a very different thing it's it's evolved over those 40 years or 30 years or whatever um and i think Crazy Cat in some ways is kind of the progressive like, oh, I I also happen to think that cartoon animals are interesting and I'm going to use some of the existing paradigm in a way that, like you're talking about, directly deconstructs those negative uh, data points. Another blind spot in this story is how Harriman first became interested in art or what his motivations were for pursuing art as a career. Nonetheless, what is known is that sometime after graduating from high school in 1897, Harriman sold a sketch of the Hotel Petrolia in Santa Paula to the Los Angeles Herald. This deal led to a $2 per week job at the Herald as an assistant in the engraving department. While there, Harriman would occasionally draw for advertisements and political cartoons, eventually moving on to comic strips. Then, when he was 20, Harriman snuck aboard a freight train heading to New York City, hoping his prospects as a cartoonist would be better there. And as this kind of alludes to, the, the, the fascinating thing is, there, the, as, as it said, there's no, there's, there, 
he he didn't have a history of like being into art or at least that anybody knows about like to 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 go back to the disney comparison like there's this mythology around walt disney of like growing up and his love for art and animation and the fact that he wanted to be an animator since he was a little kid and all these things there's like a, there's like all of this mythology around that and like you know a lot of it is 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 not true i was and just gonna say most of which is just bullshit and up iWorks did everything <laughs> well, it's, well it's not even that's 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 my point though is like there's this mythology of him having this interest and these dreams and hopes and it's interesting because that's there and yet in reality he didn't actually really um do the work uh and yet with with george harriman um he 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 had a daily comic strip that he he drew he drew a he drew a, a comic strip every day for like 30 years or something like that and there's no evidence of him being interested in art before he sold this cartoon and became a cartoonist i mean that's true and untrue like there's a you don't just you don't just sell a sketch of a a building to a newspaper like ah, i just fell backwards and spent four hours rendering this hotel you know like i mean i'm sure it, i'm sure he was into art my point is is that there's no mythology around oh don't, like, yes it, yes yes there's no personal lore there's no like when Jack Kirby was a kid, he was in a gang in Brooklyn. And then he said, no, Roz, don't go with those gangsters. Come see my etchings. And then they went upstairs and he actually did show her the etchings because he was a gentleman's. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like that. Um, yeah, it's just it's just interesting to me that there's no there's no mythology around this guy and his work in that way. Everything about him is just so low key. Like it's like. But that's also by design, right? Yeah. Like he's purposefully like, I just want to draw my comic. Don't pay attention to it. It's just about a silly little cat. I'm moving on. Don't pay attention to me. I'm wearing this hat so you can't see my hair. I'm just going to draw. Oh, look, there's a little mouse and he throws a brick through a window. It's definitely not an indictment of capitalism. He's just a mouse. He he snuck it. Yeah, his whole whole vibe was just like, I'm going to fly under the radar and just one day people are going to look back and be like, oh shit, he did that? Yeah, totally. Living in a boarding house behind a shooting gallery on Coney Island, Harriman began searching for jobs with the major players in New York's publishing scene. He quickly found work making a comic for a Hearst paper titled Maybe You Don't Believe It, where he rewrote Aesop's fables, though he was quickly let go. Soon after, Harriman managed to get his foot in the door with Joseph Pulitzer, where he began working on a variety of new characters in various strips for the New York world. In 1902, after two years of magazine and newspaper work in New York, he began his first strip focused on a recurring character, Musical Moe's. This is where we should mention that a lot of this early stuff is full of horrible caricatures of other races, as you might expect from political cartoons and comic strips of this time. The strip revolved around an African-American musician who would impersonate various musicians of other ethnicities to find work. Yet despite his musical prowess, the strip would end with Moe's facing repercussions once he was found out. Which makes so much sense when you know, like on the surface, it's just some, it's just a shitty white dude being racist. And then once you know the real story, it's like, oh man, that's brutal. Yeah. It's just him. It's just him being like, I, this is, I'm living this. Yeah. Brutal. Um, Oof. Oof. Yeah. This is, uh, so the, oh my God, this is a straight up blackface. The title, the title of this episode of musical Moe's is don't read it. Don't do it. No, don't do it. Yeah, it, it's it's bad. Let's just say that. 
I mean, come on, that's not fair to the listener. Like, it's we're okay. not saying it's this is good. Like, okay, re- okay, do it, do it. The 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 title of this strip is Musical Moe's Impusinates a Scotchman with Sad Results. Which and, almost uh, it so- that sounds like a clickbait headline. Well, that's kind of what this was, right? This is like the 1902 version of a clickbait article. So the first the first panel is Musical Moe's, who's a horrifically caricatured blackface sambo illustration uh is standing there holding a bagpipe wearing a kilt and uh some sort of ill-fitting hat and he's talking to a woman who also is a horrifically caricatured racist drawing and she's saying isn't yo rather dark complected for a scotchman and musical mose is saying not so very not so very musical i don't i don't or no oh not so very much sal sorry i misread that because the lettering is really rough um yeah so the next panel is uh musical mo's like walking and playing uh the bagpipe and his word balloon says god what does that even say here i am where who charms the window marlowe what that says widow marlowe i think he's supposed to be like charming uh, somebody from a window maybe i i don't know and then the next panel is like you're seeing a courtyard and there's two white people leaning out of the courtyard and there's like music coming over a fence and the two white people are saying it's a scotchman laddie and his bagpipe ah such a lovely musical uh let's go listen to it then we're at the door of the little fence thing like the gate and they're leaning out, listening to the music, and oh god, uh, one of them is saying it's an N word, but they're not saying N word. I don't want to read that though. And then the next panel is them literally stomping on musical Moe's, and one of them is shooting him in the face with a fire hydrant, and it says, "Scotchman, are ye? How do you like these, Scotty?" Uh, and musical Moe's is crying out something that's like, "I wish." I wish man color would fade. Is that what that says? I these letter the letters are really bad, so I can't really tell what he's saying. Now we're back at his back at his home, and Musical Moe's is sitting in a chair, holding a his hand to his face. Why is his hand that big, dude? Look at his hand. His hand is like a foot long. For some reason, Musical Moe's hand is giant in this panel, and he's like covering his whole face with it. And his girlfriend says. Why didn't you impusinate a cannibal? And then he says, no, no, scotch for me. Oh, no, no more scotch for me. Yeah. If I didn't know who George Harriman was and didn't have the context of this, I would be not a fan. Yeah. And also going back to the Windsor McKay episode, just these comics from back then, they just had these like weirdly specific concepts to them. Like, you know, that, that Windsor McCain or yeah. Win- Windsor McKay comic where it's like every every strip somebody eats bad s- steak and then like yeah. has a weird dream tales of a rare bit fiend yeah and They're, that's like yeah. that's that's the concept of every uh strip that this is it's just so weird to me that like this comic was just like he impersonates a different ethnic musician yeah i mean it's fascinating on the level of understanding George Harriman's trajectory as an artist and as a person because he's obviously working out his inner trauma, right? He's like, 
he is musical Mose. He's a, a black man who has skin that's light enough that he can pass as white. And every day he's in an environment where he feels as though the people that are surrounding him who are his friends are going to turn on him because they might discover who the real George Harriman is. And uh, that's what this comic is about, despite it being very harmful and negatively portraying uh, this black man. Context is key. <laughs> I, I hate saying that, but like, you know. Well, it, I mean, it is very fascinating. I've never seen just like a blatantly racist piece of media that like informed so much about a person other than this person is racist as fuck. Well, yeah, especially because <clears throat> especially because it's it's like triple layered. It's a comic making fun of black people made by a white person who's secretly a black person who's pretending to be a white person. It's the 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 fact that there aren't like um, PhD papers being written on the psychosis of what that must do to you to be trapped in that shell. I mean, you can just see the trauma, you know, like that's what this strip is. It's him at 22 years old, not having a vocabulary or a nuanced way of processing that pain and doing it in a, a very, quite frankly, a very, <laughs> a very obvious way. Like it's he's not even subtle, like Crazy Cat is interesting because it's subtle. This is just like the worst version of Crazy Cat. Yeah. Hope nobody finds out I'm black. Yeah, yeah. The, the strip. Uh, hope nobody finds out I'm black. What would uh, you What'd you say, George? Oh no, I was just talking about my new comic strip I'm making. Yeah, yeah. I'm really terrified that uh, all of you racist white people are going to fucking murder me once it comes out what my true heritage is. What? What did you say, George? Oh, I'm just talking about my new comic book script that i'm working on i'm really terrified of what all of you white people are going to do when you find out my actual racial heritage <laughs> it's totally <laughs> that's, i that's a that's a knee slapper george i love that idea yeah oh god that's so funny can you imagine if you weren't white god we'd probably have to kill you george the world is a vampire or so i've been told twist ending billy corgan also black yeah <laughs> or no he's actually a vampire we find oh, out. he's actually we a vampire. Find, oh, right, right, right. My bad, my bad, my bad, my bad, my bad. He's a vampire. <laughs> yeah. Two years later, he came out with the strip Major Ozone's Fresh Air Crusade that ran from 1904 to 1906, which was an early success for him. The strip is similar to Windsor McKay's sneezing comic. It's about a guy who is always in pursuit of the freshest air he can find. And then in doing so, he gets into various predicaments. So, Once again, just like a weirdly specific concept. Yeah, yeah, really. The other thing that's interesting when looking about at this, you know, uh, major major ozone's fresh air crusade is that other comic that we read. George Harriman wasn't using gutters; he was just making a single box and then drawing lines through it. And to make a to make a comic really work, you need to have gutters because um, that helps each image instantly communicate to the viewer. There, it's it's its own passage of time. It's almost kind of like those little, you know, the if you're not a comic person, a gutter is the space in between the panels, right? So it's a box and then there's space and then there's another box. And um, if you have interconnected panels that aren't separated by gutters, uh, they they read as one kind of like rapid fire image as opposed to serialized concussive moments. If you have like a single image that's just interlocked with panels with you know, the panels are just a single shape with a line through it. It doesn't it doesn't work particularly well. And the level of illustration craft in this major ozone strip is just like 
leagues ahead of that musical Moe's stuff. There's light sources. There's um, what appear to be ink washes, uh, panels that are actual like guttered. Each panel is numbered one through six, um, which was a thing at that time. Less so now, obviously, but it was more of a like read them in this order. One, two, three, four, five, six. Um, so the first panel of this major ozone's fresh air crusade is him standing at a window and he's talking to a, a woman. It's a white guy with a funny like uh, facial hair situation, big mutton chops and a, a woman uh, in a frilly dress sitting like knitting. They have some dialogue, uh, which because it's not horrifically racist, I'm not going to read it like it. It's fine. We all know what it is. He's there. He's talking about how he wants some air. He opens a window. A snowball flies through the window smashes into a picture frame everybody in the room jumps including a cat that's sitting next to the woman and then the cat runs off major ozone looks out of the window and uh, a snowball hits him in the face and then the next panel like 15 snowballs are flying through the window hitting him pelting him the wall pelting the wall and everything around him and then the last one uh is the woman being like i told you not to open the door or open the window and he's closing the window because he just wants some fresh air but can't get that fresh air yeah, you can you can really just you can feel him just like l- like leaning into this comic strip with this with his whole body because it's just not horribly racist like the like the fir- like the other comic like if you know aside from the racism like it just it just kind of sucks like it's not pleasing to look at at all and the story is terrible it's a it's a it's a it's a bad comic like this is not appealing in any way even even without the racism it just it just looks like shit. And then this is just like such a major improvement that you can just see him being like, oh, I'm going to act that, like I don't feel ashamed with every line that I draw. So I'm actually going to like put some effort into this. Well, also, he's like, you know, older now, right? He's yeah. He's I mean, of, like of course, it, 25. Of course, it's because he improved. But you can just you can almost feel the energy of like, I don't feel like I'm betraying every as every molecule of my body with it with every with every pin stroke so the next uh the next strip that we're going to look at is another major ozone's fresh air crusade uh, which was published in the newark uh advertiser september 29th 1906 and this one is a full page strip it's not just a, a six panel or a three panel strip it's a it's like a newspaper broadsheet style strip so his he was moving up in the world, right? Uh, and the, the the title masthead is a little major ozone sitting on a like piece of wood floating in the ocean, and and he's saying this air is great. So then the next panel is major ozone on a ship, and uh, he's talking to a guy who works on the ship, some sort of sailor guy, and they're having some sort of conversation. The ship lurches to the side, you know, because the waves are knocking it back and forth and Major Ozone flops out of the bed, getting tied up in his blanket. And then the next panel is him rolling down the ship's deck. And we see in the corner of the panel a horrifically racist Sambo style drawing of a man coming out of the lower decks. And he says, oh, for the sweet land of Jericho what am what am it I don't, I don't understand that that like horrifically it's obviously racist slang but i don't even it's so it's 100 years more than 100 it's 114 years removed so i don't even really understand the 
caricature other than it is racist. And um, uh, the major major ozone is like flying by him, and then uh, major ozone is going down the steps. He's like rolling down steps into the the hold of the ship, still wrapped up in his blankets. And now he's running, he's rolling into the the lower bowels of the ship where there's coal everywhere, and uh, Major Ozone's careening towards it, still wrapped up in his blankets. Next panel, he's hitting, he's going head headfirst into all of this coal, uh, still wrapped in the blankets. Next panel is a bunch of the sailors finding him. He's sitting on a pile of coal. His face has been blacked out. And one of the pirates, sailor guys, is saying, Captain, I'd like to report a stowaway. And then the next panel, the last one, which is the punchline, is Major Ozone being put to work in the ship's furnace, throwing coal into the furnace. Uh, Obviously, the joke being that, like, because he got covered in coal, all of these... Fucking sailors think he's black. Yeah. So the 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 concept of this comic is that in Major Ozone's eternal quest for finding fresh air, unfortunate things happen to him in every comic. And in this one, the unfortunate thing that happens to him is that people think he's black. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a the easy way and the incorrect thing to say here would be like, man, this George Harriman guy is really. Stuck on his racial bigotries. This guy's obviously a fucking racist. And in fact, it's the exact opposite. It's somebody trying to reckon with their entire life being and identity being stripped from them by the power structures of our racist country. And then regurgitating that out through artwork in a very weird, fucked up way. Yeah. And it's really, it's real. I mean, this is years later from the other one. And it's like, it's really fascinating when with I mean, this is a very extreme example, but with with every artist, you see this where you might recognize themes, you might re- recognize recurring motifs, or maybe you don't. Maybe you don't even recognize them. And then one day you learn something about that artist and then and then it like it, everything just like snaps into place and you're just like, oh, like it, you're like, oh, my God, like the 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 way that everything suddenly makes sense is like gives you whiplash and this is like one of the most extreme examples one one of the goofiest examples of course is like the whole thing that is like a, a joke at this point of like oh like quentin tarantino has a foot fetish and then you look back and you're like oh yeah there's all these shots in all of his movies where it's like a shot of a woman's foot for like a weirdly long amount of time and this is like that on like crack yeah yeah no, he's not hurting anybody with his foot fetish. Yeah, except for like people who like their family was murdered by a foot. Oh yeah, that's of course a, gi- a giant. Mon- yeah, yeah. How could I? How could I have monster. forget forgotten in the athlete, the athlete's foot wars of the the 2010s? My bad. Two, compelling characters in Coconino County. Harriman's most famous characters, Crazy Cat and Ignatz the Mouse, first appeared in his 1910 comic strip, The Dingbat Family, also known as The Family Upstairs, and was published in the New York Evening Journal, a Hearst paper. 
The strip focused on a family's futile attempts to get back at their nosy upstairs neighbors. Though the strip was not highly regarded, the shenanigans of the cat and mouse Harriman used to fill space at the bottom of each scene proved quite popular. As such, Harriman began giving these characters their own mini strip of thin panels underneath the main strip. All right, so the panel is man sitting and reading a newspaper and his wife is walking towards the window. There's water leaking out the window. She leans out the window. Water pours down. The old man's like, hey, what are you doing up there? Then a uh, a potted plant comes down, smashes him in the face. And then the last panel is a young boy coming down there and being like, uh, hey, dad, uh, the boy who lives upstairs just blacked my eye. And in the foreground of all of those, there is a little mouse and a little cat just like sitting there kind of playing with each other like the cat is the mouse like hits a little ball towards the cat and then he picks it up and he throws it and it hits the cat in the face and then the last one is the cat like looking at the viewer like ow that hurt it's funny to me that anyone would know that 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 cat and that mouse which are microscopic drawings have names yeah yeah it's almost it's like a little it's like a little like easter egg or like a little it's like a little bonus thing that you could either like pay attention to or not in this comic yeah, and then in this next one, it's it's basically the same idea where the family is running around a house doing you know wacky, uh, wacky antics. But now the uh, the bottom there's like a, an actual attached comic strip with one, two, three, four, five, six very small thin panels with these very tiny drawings all running across it. It really is like a the equivalent of like a TV show's like backdoor pilot or something. Like he's just like, I, w- I really want to do this cat and mouse comic, but I guess the only way I can really do stuff is by doing a wacky "these people hate their upstairs neighbors" comic, and then just like slowly over time being like, I really don't give a shit about this neighbors slapstick comedy. I want to do more of this cat and mouse stuff. Yeah, and then it just like it literally like takes over the comic because in the like you said in the first one, it's like at the bottom and it's it's like almost kind of like. Like there's there's some there's some kids book that my that my kids have where like it's 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 the book is like it's called like how to babysit grandpa or something like that. And the story is like a a grandpa comes over to babysit a kid, but it's from the kid's perspective and he thinks he's babysitting the grandpa and it's like him giving you tips on how to babysit a grandpa. But then like if you notice in the illustrations, there's like this little side story happening where there's these little there's these little mice in the house and they're trying to like kill the grandpa but it's like it's like it's like a thing that you will, you just have to pay attention to and you notice in the background and that's how this is and then in the second one it's like its own thing that's like actually literally taking up more space of the panel and it's like carved out its own little space and drawn focus to itself by becoming its own little mini panels and then, you know, basically after that, it just becomes the whole comic. Also, during this time period, uh, George Harriman, like he was, so he was he was working for the newspaper doing these strips, but he would also do illustrations of like political stuff that was happening at the time. And he did a bunch of strips uh, lampooning the kind of hysteria around interracial boxing, which at this point was like a big deal because it was like. Only white boxers should be able to box because racism, you know, black people aren't fucking people or something. I, I don't, you, whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, 
but he did a bunch of a bunch of illustrations and and comics adjacent work that was all about boxing hysteria and sports racism uh at this time as well only white people should be able to punch each other with gloves on in july of 1912 harriman had the less than popular dingbats leave town on vacation allowing crazy and ignats to take over the strip entirely for the duration of the dingbats trip the strip was even retitled crazy cat and i mouse or is it it's not a very particularly good title <laughs> yeah i kind of love that though like that like it is just the backdoor pilot like you're talking about like it goes from their like little background details in the comic to like they get their little like almost like sub comic within the comic and they have their own panels and then in, and then in one strip they're just like all right the family's going on vacation and they're gone now and then it just becomes those characters very silly it's very silly <laughs> Finally, after playing with these characters and their place within this universe for nearly three years, Harriman managed to get the green light for a completely separate Crazy Cat daily strip to be printed in various Hearst newspapers across the country beginning in 1913. These early strips ran vertically down the left margin of the comic section and followed this format until 1920. Along the way, these early vertical strips had gained enough praise for Crazy to receive a full page on Sundays starting in 1916. Though due to pushback on behalf of editors who found the strip too strange and difficult to understand for the comic section, these full page comics would be placed amidst articles in the art and drama sections. And and that was kind of I guess I guess apparently like the 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 Crazy Cat as it evolved and and became its own strip it like almost existed like outside of the context of of the Sunday comic strips and or just the strips in, in the newspaper at all. Like it was it was almost its own thing to the point where it had its own like placement that wasn't am, uh, amongst the rest of the strips. And it it just it just wasn't like it, it was it was never like established as being like just another one of the comic strips. It was almost its own thing um, and not necessarily, you know, highfalutin way where it was like this is better than all these other strips. It was almost kind of put there as like, this is like a weird and not popular. Um, but because of that, he was, he was able to do interesting and experimental things and have a lot more freedom to just kind of like be weird with it in a way that a lot of these other strips just, I don't think probably had the freedom to do. They were locked into like people love fucking whatever. What? Uh, I don't what, what, <laughs> People do love whatever. Yeah. That uh, was, one one of Windsor McKay's most popular. Yeah, yeah, that's where it's it follows a family that's like searching for uh, the salve to their existential loneliness, and then end up just falling into a swimming pool every episode. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna take a look at this crazy cat, uh, which was published in New York, New York Evening Journal, October twenty eighth, nineteen thirteen, and it's titled "Crazy Cat Ever Meet a Watler." Crazy Cat's walking up to Ignatz and they're saying, I am, I am now what is known as, I am now what is known as a Watler, Ignatz. And Ignatz goes, oh, a Watler, hey? Well, well. And then Crazy Cat says, oh, most surefully, yes. Oh, most surefully, you see. Suppose me and thee made a meetings on a corner. And uh, Ignatz goes, yeah. And Crazy Cat goes, and me would say to thee, Ignatz old Topsy, what'll he have? And uh, Ignatz goes, clever, clever. And then uh, Ignatz is, or, uh, Crazy Cat's kind of leaning back, 
kind of self-satisfied. And they're saying, they would say, I'll have a nuts Tuesday or sodas or I'll have nuts Tuesday or a soda's water. Uh, If you're unfamiliar, Crazy Cat speaks in this kind of like weird broken language, which we'll talk about in a second. But it's a little it's a little difficult to read out loud. Uh, And Inez says, exactly. Then Crazy Cat says, then me would retorque. Sure, go ahead. Sure, you see, got my permissions. And then Ignaz is like jumping to the side and going, oh. And then the final panel is Crazy Cat flying through the air. And the the word balloon just, it's like he's being punched or something. And he's like flying through the air. And uh, the word balloon says, ah, Snow Flynn Watlin with that fool mice. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I have no idea what the fuck that comic strip is about. Uh, but let's talk about the way Crazy Cat speaks for a second. Uh, that's that, that's that strip specifically was not a great example of the genius of Crazy Cat. There are a lot of really good ones. That one don't know what it means. Um, but in the context of the time, Crazy Cat's speech pattern I think was was read and understood in a more kind of like cute, the equivalent of what you see online now where people make videos of their dogs or something and it's like what is dis and the dog is saying like what is this but dis is spelled d-i-s yeah it's like i can't have cheeseburger or like yeah if it if i fits i sits yeah definitely so it's it's definitely like supposed to be in that lineage of kind of cutesy talk but once you understand harriman's racial background and the kind of unofficial theme of crazy cat being this identity or uh examination of self in a context of a larger power structure it's very apparent that he's mimicking and or deconstructing and or satirizing the way people view the speech patterns of black people at that time yeah but like even even like it, it's like even deeper coded than it you know cuz it's like before it's like he was a he was a, a a person of color posing as a white person making racially charged comic strips in the way that a lot of white cartoonists did at the time. But secretly, he was actually kind of like externalizing his own inner struggle within the context of this trope that was utilized by actual white cartoonists to further racial stereotypes. And then this is like even further coded of that where... He 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 moves away from explicitly making these racially charged comics and instead he codes the 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 he he codes the the ra- uh, the the racial character the the himself as a person of color even deeper into just being a cat that kind of talks in like a kind of funky way and so it's like an it's like a layer deeper of like metatextually commenting on the fact that he is hiding within this identity uh and 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 like oh there's a plane going by like like do you see is what i'm saying making any sense like yeah absolutely he 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 was sort of like being so overt about it like you read those comics and you're like oh my god like this is so over the top in the way that he's like just he's being so ham-fisted about like telling on himself basically 
Yeah, like and, like it once you know. I mean, I think that's the reason why some of it, so much of his work was reappraised critically once his racial background was discovered because it is so on the surface unsubtle. And then once you have that secret key, you're like, oh fuck, that's what it's about. Yeah, and then Crazy Cat is almost like within the context of his body of work, he goes even further into hiding and like removing himself of the context of his ethnic background, which is which is which is super fascinating. Uh, So admittedly, I'm not I'm not super familiar with Crazy Cat. So I know I I know of Crazy Cat. I have academic knowledge about Crazy Cat and not that much at that. Um, So I can't really comment on this, but like when was the first time that you read crazy cat and like to the point of what we were just talking about. And I think that in, in reading about crazy cat, I see this common theme with a lot of people where they're basically like, yeah, I, I didn't fucking understand this comic at all when I first read it. So I guess like, what, what was your experience reading the comic for the first time? Did you understand it? No, I did not. I I did not like it at first. When did you start understanding it? Like what was your evolution of like beginning, beginning to appreciate this this comic i first found it in either junior high or high school because of the comics journal uh i read some big breakdown of it and i was just like oh this sounds interesting what is this and i got some collection i don't remember what i don't remember if that's when the if fanographics was doing the the crazy cat collections or if it was before that i'm not sure i was kind of dimly aware of crazy cat in the way that i was aware of like the yellow kid or um any of those kind of like turn of the century, you know, tales of a rare bit fiend, little Nemo, you know, just like the in air quotes comic strip classics. Um, but I wasn't really a comic strip person, um, ironically, because I got into comics through comic strips. You know, I, I read them in newspaper all the time when I was a kid, um, but I didn't really get into comic strips until a little a little later. And quite frankly, I don't really like the comedy comic strips as much as i like the like action adventure serial ones like the phantom uh secret agent x9 um you know the the kind of uh alex raymond stuff flash gordon um the tarzan strip is really great um the al williamson stuff uh you know i i i kind of came in that way where i i rediscovered i rediscovered an appreciation and uh, a love of newspaper strips through the adventure serials or detective serials or whatever stuff, the action strips, uh, Modesty Blaze, the James Bond strips. And then uh, around that time, read that big piece in a comics journal, found a collection, I think at Bookman's or something. And I read like half of it and was just like, what the fuck is this? I do not get this at all. Like this is hard to read the lettering's bad i don't understand why people say these drawings are so good they fucking suck i don't get this maybe i was just too much like fucking brian hitch is the man or something you know i don't know i went back and revisited it maybe when i was in college maybe a little after then and um i really i connected much more with it then but i think i also started reading the later stuff i think i started in the like the collection that i had was like stuff from early and early ish in the crazy cat run it wasn't um the dingbats stuff where they were just in it it was the crazy cat solo stuff um or at least that's my memory you know we're going back to fucking junior high here um 
and uh the the stuff i found uh, the stuff i ended up reading later i enjoyed much more but i still didn't really connect with it until i read a big i don't remember if it was comics alliance it was one of those kind of 2000s explosion of comics journalism sites somebody did a huge breakdown basically on a lot of the similar themes that we're talking about here of you know reappraising Harriman, his racial background, how that fit into the book. Like, I didn't know any of that stuff. And once you know that stuff, for me, that was a big entry point into the work. And I could really, like, get the joke in air quotes. You know, I I understood the metaphor more. And even the stuff that was weird and didn't really make sense, like that last one where you're just like, I I don't know what's happening here. Um, I found it charming on a, almost like reading someone's diary level. So that's kind of, that's kind of basically what I was expecting you to say broadly. So, which leads me to my next question, which is... <laughs> I, I love the idea that you plot out these episodes, like, in your head. You're like, okay, I'm going to ask him this here. And I think that he found it in... And so, like, you're, like, chess moving us through the, the podcast. But that all being said, kind of similar to what we've talked about in some of the Outsider Artist episodes. Uh, we talked we talked about this in a... a, a a big component of the the shags episode where we said like, or at least Andrew said that a big part of appreciating the music of the shags is knowing the story of why the music was made and some of the trauma that went into the creation of the music. I mean, so, that's a hundred percent what this is like a hundred and fifty percent. Yeah. Which is the question I was going to have is like, do you think that that component of understanding in retrospect the the very fact of the of him hiding his racial background and how those things were externalized in his work is is that a key component to appreciating crazy cat? I don't I don't know if it is for other people, you know? I think uh it's very, you know, crazy cat is a kooky comic book or comic strip that, you know, is of a certain time and era and if you like the that stuff um you probably will like it you know um i personally am just not as into that stuff um like i don't particularly like pogo or i you know i'm not really into uh fucking um the cats and jammer kids you know like that's just not my speed personally um but they're very popular and they've been popular for a hundred years so obviously i'm wrong on a certain level and that they are good um because people love them uh but it's just not necessarily my speed um, and that's kind of what Crazy Cat had fallen into me, or the the, the in my head, that's kind of where Crazy Cat was for me, where it's like, oh yeah, it's like Cats and Jammer Kids, or Little Nemo. I mean, Little Nemo is a little bit more interesting to me, because it's so formally inventive, but, you know, it's racist, and I, I don't know, like, the early stuff, especially Rare Bit Fiend, where it's just kind of like, and then he wakes up, and he's like, oh, my stomach! Like, I'm like, eh, it's not really for me, right? It's just not what I'm interested in. Um, but Little Nemo gets more interesting the deeper it goes on because it's obviously Windsor McKay working out his interpersonal traumas and his struggles. And it's so strange and abstract. And yes, it is racist, but it's racist of the time. And it's interesting to see how people processed the horribly virulent racism of the 1920s. And, you know, it's interesting on a cultural level. Um, and then it's even even the stuff that his son did is really interesting to me because his son took over the strip after his dad stopped doing it, which is just so sad. You know, it's just like, I, I want 
so badly to be an artist and the only way I can do it is by following directly in my father's footsteps and then it fails like it's fascinating it's really really it's it's Shakespearean almost in scale and scope um and without the context of you know all art is about context right all art is about the environment in which you're receiving the information and um yeah I I was like this is fine like sure I appreciate it for what it is. It was a popular strip for a long time. Good for you, George Harriman. I don't really, doesn't really speak to me. But then once you have that secret code of, oh no, it's actually someone's innermost trauma realized like writ large through this guise of goofy animals. Like that's everything I care about. Like that's, that's hundred percent like, you know, Steve Gerber, Destroyer Duck, you know, like I fucking love that shit. Uh, which if anybody doesn't know the story, the guy who created Howard the Duck had the character stolen by Marvel slash maybe he signed it over and didn't realize what he was doing slash definitely signed a contract with Marvel. And then when the character became super popular, was like, I should own a chunk of this. And they said no. And then he sued them for the rights. Depends on which version of that story you want to believe. But in order to pay his legal bills at a certain point, uh, Steve Gerber hired Jack Kirby to illustrate a series called Destroyer Duck, which was a soft sequel to Howard the Duck about an anthropomorphized duck character fighting a giant corporate machine that ate ideas called God Core. And uh, he uh, used the funds that that comic made to pay for his legal bills to sue Marvel after the Howard the Duck movie came out in order to try to get get the character back and or um, have a financial stake in things. And they ended up settling out of court. Um, But like Destroyer Duck is the same thing. Like on the surface, it's like, oh, it's just a knockoff Howard the Duck clone. Because Steve Gerber had done that multiple times. He did a he did a character called Mickey the Rat, I think. Stuart the Rat, sorry. He did a character called Stuart the Rat after his first falling out with Marvel, which is just is a Howard the Duck riff with Gene Colan or Val Merrick. I don't remember which one of them drew it, but one of them drew it. The the two artists who are largely associated with um with Howard the Duck and like that book is not particularly interesting other than like, do you like funny animal comics? Because it doesn't have anything to say, right? It's not in, it doesn't exist in opposition to something where there's a narrative around Destroyer Duck and it does, it exists with an express purpose of like, we got to get money to f- fucking take on God, which is why he's literally fighting God core. Yeah. And I remember you also told me that the Chuchi Woochie uh, strip didn't necessarily resonate with you at first until you learned that, um, Tony Baloney was secretly two little kids stacked on top of each other wearing a trench coat and Chuchi Wuchi, the boy detective was basically him externalizing the idea that he was constantly hiding the fact that he wasn't an adult. He was actually just two children stacked on top of each other, drawing a comic strip. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I'm not going to lie, Spandrew, uh, after everything that's happened, I don't really want to talk about Chuchi Wuchi. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the ad, there's added context on top of that, that not only did that happen and not only did that become your favorite comic strip slash um, adventure serial slash action, action, you know, television show of the 1940s, but also um, the real Chuchi Woochie ended up becoming a multidimensional time beast that murdered your best friend. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's a little hard looking at the face of my best friend every day, just with an eye patch. It's a little hard. 
Yeah. But but I think I think ultimately it all just Lynn, you know, it just gives it that more context, just more and more. The more context, the better something gets. So, re- so really the fact that Chuchi Wuchi came through time merged with a with a disembodied um, sp- spirit of sadness and murder your best friend actually just makes those original strips just all the better. So by now you're probably wondering what makes Crazy Cat so special. And well, it's hard to say. For over 30 years, the comic followed a simple premise. Crazy is in love with Ignatz, the mouse, despite Ignatz's hatred of Crazy. Ignatz throws a brick at Crazy's head. Then, more often than not, a half-conscious Crazy will ramble about their love for Ignatz while Officer Pup, a police dog who loves Crazy, attempts to catch Ignatz and put him in jail. Though, as made clear, the moment you lay your eyes upon these comics, reducing Crazy Cat to this seemingly toxic love triangle is doing it a major disservice. Set in the desert landscape of Coquino County, Arizona, Crazy Cat is best described as an exercise in ambiguity. The settings, much like the panels themselves, are in constant flux. No two panels share the same background, and no two pages share a particular layout. Bill Watterson, creator of Calvin and Hobbes, described this dreamlike landscape as a pure and completely realized personal vision. That the strip's inner mechanism is ultimately as unknowable as George Harriman. Nothing in Crazy Cat had a supporting role, least of all the Arizona desert setting. Mountains are striped, mesas are spotted, trees grow in pots. The horizon is a low wall that characters climb over. Panels are framed by theater curtains and stage spotlights. Monument Valley monoliths are drawn to look more like their names. The moon is a melon wedge, suspended upside down, and virtually every panel features a different landscape, even if the characters don't move. The land is more than a backdrop. It is a character in the story, and the strip is, quote, about that landscape as much as it is about the animals who populate it. So a couple things here. I think we haven't discussed this aspect of it yet. We've really mostly been talking about the sort of like postmodern aspects of the comic and then the the con- the subtext of it. Um, but just what you know, what's being described here, the the way that um, the sort of just surreal nature of the comic, like like the the one we were, the one you were describing earlier, even though you, we basically said, like, we don't understand what's going on in this something that's maybe lost on the audience because they're not reading it is like it really reading that comic and reading a lot of these crazy cat comics. Like it feels like you're just in a dream. Um, and almost in a way that's like a little different than Windsor McKay. Like the, the, the little Nemo comics are like, like maybe I don't, I don't know if this is a good comparison, but little Nemo is inception to crazy cats. David Lynch. Ha <laughs> ha solid like yeah totally like, like little nemo is like we're in a dream look at all this crazy dream stuff happening like there's beds that are walking and like it's 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 like very it's like somebody trying to make like a trippy dreamlike sequence whereas crazy cat strips feels like you are in a dream in in the way that like a racer head is feels like you're in a dream whereas in inception it's like this is supposed to be like you're in a dream. I, I don't. I, I don't know if that makes any sense. But well, no, because like, no. I think what you're saying is exactly right. Like, Inception is literally about going into dreams, and they're the most boring. Just life is like real life, but you're in a dream. Like it's then, only it's a dream. And then like, dream and then like name weird only. stuff happens. Like, but it's like, it's like purposely weird. It's like, yeah, but it's not even that weird. This it's still city just... folds over. That not that trippy? Like it's stuff like that. 
Yeah, but it like, but that's still like, still even in its abstractness, it's still bound by the laws of reality. Where you know what it's like when you're in a dream. Sometimes you're looking at a wall and you're like, that wall is my mother. Yeah, you know, you're just like, what? Or you're like, or you're like, you're in a house and it's your house, but it's not actually your house. Stuff like that. Like you wake up and you're like, that wasn't my house, but in the dream, it was my house. Yeah, or like. I'm eating soup, but this soup tastes like French fries. And I know that those French fries were actually children, you know, where you're just like, this doesn't, this doesn't have any earthly, it's, it's existing in a pure metaphorical state, not in a metaphor bound by the laws of reality. And there's no, and then, and there's no continuity. Like, yeah, totally. You, you can literally just like be in a place and then like you're in a different place without any transition but it's completely normal to you in the dream and you don't think anything of it and it feels like it has continuity and only when you wake up do you are you like oh that was weird um and that that's what the crazy cat comics seem like and especially because of because of the setting of these sort of like Arizona desert landscapes where like sometimes the characters are tiny against like these big backdrops um and they're just having these like abstract conversations and there's no continuity between from panel to panel. They're just in different locations and conversations will just like happen like across just random trans- transitions to different areas. It, it just has this surreal dreamlike feeling to it. Um, you know what it is? It feels like Adult Swim, but like a hundred years before Adult Swim existed. <laughs> yeah. And, and also there's like this aspect of like it, 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 it it feels dreamlike, but then also like there's certain aspects of it that make it feel like they're on stage and it's like a play because like things will kind of look like a stage sometimes like the moon looks like it's just like a fake moon. that's like, you know, like a stage prop. It's like hanging up in the sky by a wire or something like that. And it kind of reminds me of like Super Mario Brothers three. Like if you ever played that game, like it opened the, the game starts with a curtain opening and then the characters run in and then the whole game like the 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 platforms that you jump onto they're like these blocks that have like screws or like rivets in the corners of them almost like they're just big like facades that are just hanging on a backdrop and the the curtain opening in the beginning of the game it gives the whole game this context that the whole game the whole game is actually a, a play on stage so whenever you're playing the game you're actually acting in a play and it, it kind of has that feeling to it um and also what do you, it, the uh i feel like i feel like this is something else that you you gotta comment on the fact that that, that not only does this comic take place in arizona but also george harriman loved arizona and like he would like go there and he i think he lived there like part part of like he was like a snowbird basically and he would go live in arizona for parts of the year and he just loved arizona yeah i don't get it man i i mean it's it's funny to say that i don't get it when so many of my books feature arizona in some way uh but they feature it because that's what i know how to write about because i don't like that place (laughs) not because i'm like let's celebrate fucking arizona and the amazing things there yeah yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't say that I've ever been compelled to write about Arizona. Yeah, I, I wish I could say that I hadn't been compelled to write about Arizona, but that's more of uh, therapy, exercising those, uh, those demons, baby. 
he has a house here in California too that I that I think is like maybe it's up in the Hollywood Hills. I don't remember where it is, but it's like I think it's like for sale. Like I think it's a or at least it was like a prior to the pandemic. Um and it's like a like you know, like a Spanish casita or whatever, where it's like a, a mansion, but it's like all these kind of, you know, adobe buildings and stuff. And I'm like, is it weird to just go to that rich person's house that owns it now and be like, can I just see George Harriman's house? Can I just see the house? Can I just see the house? Can I walk around in your house because of a cartoon cat? The Arizona desert had long been Harriman's safe space. He went every summer he could for however long he could. He befriended local First Nation people who taught him about the landscape and the significance held within its beauty. The desert was his second home and place of meditation. Crazy Cat became a tangible extension of these meditations, a visual outpour of the mess in his head, a place where his innermost thoughts could act out their lives as characters in the safety of the desert. Though many strips were simple, endearing, and focused on the sort of slapstick gags you would expect from a cartoonist, Others were intense meditations on the complexity of Harriman's own interpersonal relationships in a nation heavily stratified along racial lines. Pains and passions of all kinds were explored through these absurd characters and acted out in fantastical landscapes. Though melancholic at times, it seems clear that Harriman was constantly attempting to find beauty amidst the social complexities of his reality. Perhaps this sentiment is why so many artists and poets over the years found solace in his work. Yeah, I can remember one strip that I was like the one that I read where I was like, oh, maybe I do like Crazy Cat, where it's it's crazy and Ignat's in the desert and they're walking along having this conversation. And I don't remember what the actual strip is about, but the last panel is them sitting on like a hill watching the sunset. And they're basically saying like (laughs) they're watching they're supposed to be looking at this like a beautiful sunset and Ignat says something to the effect of like you know life is suffering and that's like the punchline of the strip or whatever and I was like this rules like I I I didn't realize that this was going to be this dark I'm I'm into it um yeah or at least that's my memory this it's it's so funny it, it could be like that's completely made up but my memory is that the they're like sitting on a outcropping looking at the sun setting and Ignat is saying something to the effect of life is suffering or something along those lines yeah, and you can see, like, going back to Bill Watterson, you can see that influence in Calvin and Hobbes because Calvin and Hobbes does the same thing where, like, obviously Calvin and Hobbes is a lot more commercial than what this is. Like, it's definitely experimental in its ways. But at the end of the day, like, each Calvin and Hobbes strip has a fairly coherent setup and punchline. And it's a lot about, like, relatable, um, familiar childhood experiences. Um being re-experienced as an adult reading this comic strip. Um, But then there are just these sort of like random sort of meditative moments in Calvin and and Calvin and Hobbes that are kind of like that, where it's just like the, 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 the the comic just like takes a break from the formula of Calvin and Hobbes and just like gets super existential writers, T.S. Eliot, E.B. White, E.E. Cummings and Langston Hughes were all devout supporters of Harriman's work. Dr. Seuss has stated that he grew up a fan of Crazy Cat and Charles M. Scholes, creator of Peanuts, once said, I always thought if I could just do something as good as Crazy Cat, I'd be happy. This praise was reciprocated by critics in Harriman's time as well. In his 1924 analysis of pop culture, The Seven Lively Arts, Gilbert Seldes called Crazy Cat the most amusing and fantastic and satisfactory work of art produced in America today, stating that 
Mr. Harriman, working in a despised medium without an atom of pretentiousness, is day after day producing something essentially fine, which in I'm sure in, in the in language a, in of 1924, modern... <laughs> essentially fine is like really good, but yeah, essentially in, in, fine in a, is like in a mo- in modern context that just sounds like he's like yeah, uh, it's okay, like <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is rich with something that we have too little of, fantasy. It is wise with pithy irony. It has delicacy, sensitiveness, and an unearthly beauty. The strange, unnerving, distorted trees, the language, inhuman, unanimal, the events, so logical, so wild, are all magic carpets and fairy foam all charged with unreality. Through them wanders crazy, the most tender and most foolish of creatures, a gentle monster of our new mythology. And so here's the comic that I would say really exemplifies what Crazy Cat is, even though it's one of the rare ones where no bricks are thrown. All right, so in the first panel, uh, Crazy Cat is sitting underneath a weird abstract tree with a pillow and a blanket, and uh, there's a thing falling from the sky that looks like a star, and there's a caption that says, a star falls, a little star, just a baby star, una... Una Estrelita Sieda? Sieda? Right there at the bottom. Una Estrelita Sieda? Sieda? I have no idea. Number seven, baby. Okay, well, it doesn't matter. So it's crazy sitting there. And also at this point, like, crazy's design has been um, solidified. So now it's like crazy really started out as like a cat, like definitively a cat. And now. The design for Crazy Cat is this weird cat-human hybrid, but not in the cutesy way that you would expect it to be. It has like a human nose and almost like a face with stubble and cat ears and an all-black body, which is, again, interesting in the context of Harriman because this Crazy Cat character has an all-black body and a white face, like a Caucasian-looking face. Yeah, and it kind of goes back to... Number one, it it goes back to the Sam and Max episode. We were talking about how like Max ends up being this thing that's like not quite a rabbit. He's just like a weird rabbit-esque unidentified creature. And it goes back to what we were talking about before with the whole like Mickey Mouse isn't a mouse. It's a cartoon character that looks like a mouse where, yeah, he, he he's no longer a cat or he's no longer anything specifically. He's just a he's a visual representation of george harriman's inner turmoil and so the the star is kind of falling to the ground crazy's waking up crazy dives catches the star in their hands before it hits the ground then crazy's like looking at it in this kind of like intimate way where he they're kind of like examining the star for a second then they're looking up at the sky like wondering like where did this come from what's happening then the next panel, they've put the star on the ground and they're taking the pillowcase off of the pillow that they were just sleeping on. They're dumping out uh, the in- insides of the pillow, the like contents of the pillow. So there's now a pillow and then they're fanning the they're fanning a, uh, a, a, a pile of sticks that have been lit on fire with the pillowcase and the star is next to the fire. And then they're using the fire with the pillowcase and a makeshift sling to put the star in the sling and use the heat from the fire to make the pillowcase elevate like a 
air hot air balloon. Next panel, the the pillowcase air balloon is floating up into the sky. Then the next one is Crazy Cat sleeping on their de-pillowcased pillow. Ignatz is walking up to Crazy, and the pillowcase is now falling back down to the ground. And then Officer Pup is walking up to them, uh, and Officer Pup is saying, I'm back home and happy. Thanks. Is he referring to Ignatz as Twinkie? Well, he's he's like reading a note that was. Oh, in, that, that that's was, what he's supposed to be doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, he's that, okay. That that wasn't clear to me at first. So Officer Pup is reading a note that ha, that they've pulled out of the pillowcase, and it says, "I'm back home and happy. Thanks." Dash dash Twinkie. A note in the pillow slip from the sky from the sky signed Twinkie. I wonder if Crazy knows anything about this. And then Ignat says, "Am." And that's it. And then they and then they're peering at each other through like a tube that goes through a brick wall. Yeah, I think that's more just like a decorative illustration. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is fucking weird. <laughs> but it's like it's sad though, right? It's like yeah. oh, you know, there's this star that's fallen from the heavens and crazy. Put all this effort into uh, putting it back into the sky, and then it writes this little thank you note and. Uh, nobody believes that he would do it because why would crazy do that? Crazy is just a fucking sleeping cat, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Really, really surreal. And yeah, well, it, it just, yeah, one, I said it before, but I, I think reading this, you would just not ever think that this, it just, it just feels, it feels surreal and experimental in a way that you would not place in that time period. Yeah, completely. Act 3. Language is that we may misunderstand each other. Though Crazy Cat was praised by critics and intellectuals of its time, it was far from popular. In fact, it only ran for so long because William Randolph Hearst himself was allegedly such a fan of the comic that he wouldn't let anyone cancel it. It is probably safe to say that the biggest reason Crazy Cat didn't resonate with the general public was the language. Harriman often wrote words out phonetically, giving the characters a whimsical dialect as they spoke in poetic puns. Readers often struggled to even decipher the wordplay or simply saw the strips as nonsensical, rating them poorly in the newspaper's popularity polls, and even sending letters to the paper to complain about its bewildering nature. People also sent in their complaints regarding the way Crazy's gender would ebb and flow from panel to panel with a bold fluidity. Harriman would retaliate to these complaints by having various characters directly question Crazy about their pronouns, only to have Crazy respond with some unbothered variation of, quote, I am who I am, which is... Once again, I, I keep hitting on this, but that's that's uh, just that's nuts that they were th- that this was being dealt with in this way in like the 1940s, well, is 1930s, 1940s, whatever, whatever time later time period of this comic was. Yeah, I mean, it's it. We talked about it early in the episode, too. Like, it's so it's so cool that it has this weird. And I think that's kind of the stuff that I didn't really get to because it's, it's so sophisticated that I didn't really the backgrounds changing really fucked with me when I first started reading Crazy Cat because I was like, this doesn't make any sense. The characters just like jump around. Like, you know, even in that last strip that we were analyzing, in the last two panels, Crazy is sleeping on the ground and then in the next panel, he's sleeping in the ground in the same position but now there's a tree next to him and the background vista is completely different and there's a road 
and it initially reads as incompetent like bad faith it it reads as like oh this guy dashed this fucking comic strip off strip off really quickly and like it's not constructed with thought or meaning behind it where in actuality i think quite frankly some of it is that but some of it also is very well considered and uh you know about like the transitiveness of life and and how our surroundings don't define us and how the the trappings that society and the world foist upon you don't need to shackle you if you don't let them yeah well yeah and i think i think you know i think there is some aspect aspect of it that was like he was doing a daily strip he was doing a a comic a day and he wasn't like a formative powerhouse in the same way that like a Windsor McKay was. So part of it was him just being like, I just got to fucking figure this shit out. And just it's this stream of consciousness thing where I'm sure some of that stuff really was just him. Like, like Oh fuck. Like I gotta get this done. Like, Oh, there's a tree now. Fuck it. Um, but in that process, like that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Like the, the way that you can like force out pure un, uninterrogated subconscious inspiration by just like having to get something done and not have giving having time to stop and think about it uh can sometimes create really great things i mean honestly if 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 uh, i'm i'm not trying to compare uh us to this at, at all but um sometimes that's how this show goes where i have i have like a very sp- small window of time every week where I can edit the show and because of that sometimes I'm just I'm just powering through this like trying to get this done and sometimes I kind of end up like listening to an episode after the fact and just being like damn like this is really good like I didn't I I couldn't I didn't have I didn't have time to stop and like overthink things and I just had to like get through this and the end result can sometimes be surprisingly really interesting and unique because I didn't have that ability to overthink it and like over engineer it. Um, and I think that can be true in the writing as well, but I especially experience that in like the editing where it's like, I'm up until like I'm sitting there at like five o'clock in the morning, just being like, oh, I'm almost fucking done and I can go to sleep or whatever. And in that process, um, some really interesting things can happen um, where it's almost like some, subconscious thing bypassing my conscious mind and like coming out in the work in a way that i wouldn't consciously be able to do yeah yeah totally i mean i think that even happens sometimes with you know the way that you and i experience life you know you say yes to things you that you shouldn't say yes to you go on trips to secret cabal controlled islands or black market techno firms and you know distant continents because you're kind of like well i guess this is what we're doing right now i gotta fucking do this i can't fucking i can't say no you know i mean we don't need to pay rent that badly we have fucking like nine roommates <laughs> like we don't need all of these motherfuckers but you know sometimes you just got to say yes to freddie coming and staying with us you know despite this disconnect in understanding 
Fans of the strip are quick to argue there is a clear love for language present in Harriman's. Bill Watterson encapsulates Harriman's peculiar use of language best by saying, As the artwork is poetic, so is the writing. Crazy Cat's unique texture comes in large part through the conglomeration of particular spellings and punctuations, dialects, intermingling of Spanish, phonetic renderings, and alliteration. Crazy Cat's Pocachino County not only had a look, but had a sound as well. Slightly foreign, but uncontrived. Because of its particularly poetic nature, fans of the strip often state that the comic has an entrancing quality to it. A particular bewilderment which compels them to spend hours at a time doing nothing but meditating on the possible meanings presented by just a handful of pages. Crazy Cat is not a comic that people necessarily have nostalgic attachments to, nor do fans tend to be wholly obsessed with the strip. Instead, Crazy Cat is a treat for those who wish to study it. It grips its fans through a more visceral sort of attachment, showing them how much humanity can be found within such an unconventional world. And I, and I think that I, that definitely has validity. I, I, in, in researching, I kind of saw a common theme, which basically you reiterated, which is a, a lot of the fans of Crazy Cat, and I think this is probably to do with why it wasn't popular particularly at the time, well, it was popular, but then it got unpopular because it just stayed around and people were like, we fucking hate this. Yeah. Go away. But a lot of the com- the contemporary fans of it, they all kind of say the same thing that you kind of said, which is like, I read this when I was a kid or I saw this when I was a kid and I just did not get it. And I didn't. I was just like, this is weird. And it wasn't until I was an adult, basically, and I revisited it that I. I suddenly got interested in the bigger things going on with the strip and I became a huge fan of it. And it became about this like rediscovery of the comic as an adult in a new context and then starting to analyze it with an adult mind. Um, And so there are, there are not many people who have any kind of like nostalgia for it where they're just like, yeah, I read this when I was a kid and I loved it. Now you know, I just I to this day, I'm, I just still love this property. It seems like the story is always like I read this once when I was a kid, thought it sucked. And then like later on, rediscovered it and realized it was like the best comic ever. Well, the, the first time I read it, too, like because I read most of it or not most because I read some of the more early stuff, it just kind of was fine. And then I. But not, I but think, it, but in a modern way, not in a, not in a, 20s. not, not in a 1920s. Fine. It was just, it wasn't, it wasn't fine. It was fine. Um, but also when I tried to get into the later stuff, Crazy Cat's nose freaked me out because like this is so strange. Like it, he's like a human man's face, and not like a cute, like abstracted human man's face. Just like a creepy old man's face, like stapled to this cat body. Yeah. I, I, mean, I was it, like, I don't, I don't like this. Yeah. It went in the opposite way of Garfield where like Garfield started out as this weird kind of blob character. And over time he made it, uh, Jim Davis made it, made the character cuter and well, more Jim Davis's, Jim Davis's ghost artists made it. Cuter. Oh yeah. But yeah, but the, they made it cuter and more appealing to a broad audience. And then like, a lot of the popularity of was Garfield was like this, this active feedback loop of like, we are crafting this thing to be appealing to the widest audience possible until it becomes one of the most popular comic strips of all time. 
And this was like the opposite of it, where it's like, let's make it fucking weirder and creepier and just really alienate these motherfuckers. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody under the age of eight is going to shit themselves when they see this. <laughs> so, yeah. So, Dave, uh, what are your what are your final thoughts on um, our, our man, George Harriman and and uh, the wacky world of of Cocaquino uh, County? Is that what it is? Yeah. Mm hmm. Uh, I think my f- my final thoughts are my final thoughts are something along the lines of that the story of George Harriman is a reminder that life is rarely what it seems. You know, I think there's a I think there's a kind of jaded approach to a lot of things that happen today where you're snap judgments and hot takes and instant knee-jerk impulses are rewarded in our culture currently um you know whoever the person who screams the loudest is the person who gets the most response not the person with the most thought and considered opinion and this isn't some like rant against fucking council culture or some shit like that that's not what i'm talking about i'm just talking about like you know in, in thinking about george harriman who made a thing that i did not connect with at all But then once there's this little secret key piece of information, everything about his body of work is redefined in a new and quite frankly, fascinating light. And I just wonder what that piece of information is for other artists that I don't like. Like, I'm sure that there is I'm sure there's a secret key to Michael Bay, you know, like I'm sure in the Michael Bay biopic that's going to come out in 3033. You know, I'm I'm curious what the uh, rosebud moment is. For him, you know, because once you know that the rosebud moment for Harriman was this kind of closely guarded racial identity, it redefines everything and his whole work has a new meaning to it. And I'm so curious if there's a secret key to that for other creators that I don't like or creators that I do like. Like, imagine if you found out that Michael Bay's mother died in a fiery car crash and he witnessed it. And so every time he makes one of those shitty Transformer movies where it's just like silverware punching itself for two hours, it's him trying to unpack the the trauma of witnessing the per- the person who gave birth to him die in a fiery wreck before his eyes. I don't think that's true, but like, imagine if that was the case. All of his work would be so much more interesting and would actually say something personal about the man. Um, and so for me, I guess the the kind of lesson of this episode or something, the kind of thesis is like, I think it's easy to write off people working in commercial mediums as being a hack or being there just for the paycheck and being there, uh, you know, to um, pay bills because, you know, comics in the 1920s and 30s were a commercial medium. Um, But it takes a lot of effort to do these things, any type of creative endeavor, even if it's fucking Michael Bay. He made five of those Transformers movies. They spent like a billion dollars on those things. I'm sure they mean something to him. I don't know what, but they mean something. And uh, I'm very curious about what that is. Not just for him specifically, but for creative people in general. And I'm I'm kind of glad that I don't know because there's something, there's a strange beauty in that, right? Um, you know, I, I obviously I am obsessed with people who are driven by obsession um, and I like strange outsiders and misfits and um, individuals who are compelled by these bizarre compulsions. But in this very specific example, much like Henry Darger, as you mentioned early or earlier, 
it's so fucking sad. It's just so fucking sad. And I guess on one level, it's really beautiful that he was able to take all that trauma and create this thing that helped bring people together. And yeah, it might have been divisive and certain groups of people read it and were like, I don't like it. He fucking talks weird. But it's a fucking 100 years later and we'll start, we're still talking about Crazy Cat. So couldn't have been couldn't have been that much of a waste of time. Spandrew, what are your what are your final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I think everything you kind of just laid out is almost it, it, it's it's a it's this tapestry that I think is really relevant to our modern human struggle um, in an age of reactionary thinking. Um, you know, kind of what you said at the beginning of like, oh, this isn't a tirade against cancel culture. And I think that I think that that I, I, I think that the, the, the key there is that very explicitly these things are have much more nuance than these kind of like binary ways that we think about things. You either you either like you, you're either saying one thing or that you're saying the other. There's no middle ground. You either can be like fully in support of something or you are fully against it. So to the point where you have to give that preface of like, I'm not, I'm not ranting about cancel culture. That's not what I'm doing right now. And I think that, I think that that is very relevant to this because I think that, I think this is true. I think this is true of the entire spectrum of the human condition, not just artists and the way that their work is informed by their inner traumas and their unknown inner lives i think that it's that's just true in general like ranging from like really big sweeping examples to little stupid examples i i you know as at one little data point um years ago in my early early 20s i might have been like 21 or maybe even like 20 um i was working at a bookstore and um one day i went to work and I had basically just gotten broken up with. I got dumped and I was, you know, I was in my early 20s and that, you know, that was affected me a lot more than maybe it would later on. And, you know, a handful of years later, when I was maybe a little bit more mature. Um, and I went to work and I was kind of depressed. And, you know, this thing that just happened to me, I was the shirt I put on was like wrinkly because I just like didn't bother to like get a non wrinkly shirt or like iron my shirt or whatever it was. My hair was kind of messed up. I was just I was I was in a bad mood and I was depressed because this thing just happened and I kind of I looked disheveled and I happened to talk to a secret shopper that day that, you know, if you're, if you're unaware in retail stores. They send in secret shoppers, which are these people that work for these independent companies. They come in, they go through the process of buying something. They basically simulate what it would be like for an actual customer to go into a store and shop. So they talk to an employee, they ask them questions, they get them to help them find something. They get the thing, they go through the line, they they pay everything, and then they essentially write up a report on that experience. They're like narcs. They go and they're just like, well, I went to this Borders and uh, talk to uh, X person and they were very unhelpful or whatever it was. And then, and then you <laughs> literally get scored and then you like, you either get like a pat on the back for doing a good job or you get in trouble. And I got a secret shopper this day. And so a couple days later I got told by, you know, my manager, like, 
you have this secret shopper write up and they basically said that you like seemed aloof and you just like looked like you were a mess. You were just like your clothes were all wrinkly and you know, you, you just, and, and I got a bad score because of this. And you know, it just, it just really, you know, it makes you think about the fact that like, you don't know what anybody is going through at any given time. There, there is like an unseen world of context to every person. And I'm not saying that that like justifies it. I'm not saying that like, oh, like whenever somebody's horribly racist or whenever somebody like murders somebody, like what's really going on there? Like, I'm not saying that like there, there are limits. Yeah, um, we're not we're not saying that everyone who draws horrific Sambo illustrations and makes multiple virulent racist comic strips in the 1920s is secretly harboring a deep-seated trauma involving them being stripped of their racial identity but it does happen yeah uh and if and if you really want to dig into that you can say that like you know people who buy into these systemically racist um structures are part of a larger system of white supremacy that is just marbled throughout the the society of the world um, and and so you could say that maybe there is some context there that you know we're all a product of the our environment. Um, but yeah, I'm not not saying that this just somehow just like just give everyone the benefit of the doubt. That's not what I'm saying. But I, what I'm saying is that that there 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 are unseen worlds within every person that you have no idea about. We like every human being has their own conception of themselves, and then. Every single other human being has a different conception of them of that person. You are a different human being to every single person in the world. Every, every every person has a conception of every person that makes them an entirely different human being based on context and things that they do know about you and the things that they don't know about you. And the these you know every every person has some something that you don't know that's happening that might provide a completely different context to the, to their actions and the things that they've said and the things that they've done. And, you know, uh, this is a particular spotlight on a situation like that, where we can now look back and be like, Oh man, like in a certain context, this was a dude much like a lot of these other white cartoonists of the time, like Windsor McKay, who had this whole career of, these harmful racial stereotypes and playing into minstrel uh, illustrations and the, the, the culture of the time around like entertainment focused around racial tropes. And then you learn this one detail that completely changes all of it. And it just recontextualize it as recontextualizes it as this whole other thing. And it's like, how many, to your point about Michael Bay, how many time, how, what, how many other situations is there something like that going on? And, you know, you do see it like for years, there was a point whenever Louis C.K. was like a hero who like defeated Dane Cook. Like Dane Cook was this massively popular stand up com- comic that was like a very mainstream kind of like stand up comedy that your dad and then your like immature little brother would love. And and then like Louis C.K. came out and he's like, you know, you stole my jokes and you stole all these other people's jokes. And like he he like destroyed that guy's career. And it was like that. He's a hero. And then now we have a completely different conception of that dynamic. 
And now Dane Cook came out and was like, you stole my dick and you were jerking off in front of all these people unconsensually with my dick. Stop yeah. doing that with my Nick, my fucking dick. Yeah. Louis C.K. Yeah. And, you know, so, you know, Louis C.K., we have a different, a, a completely different conception of him. We've learned some very different things about him than what than what we knew at the time. And now in retrospect, it's like, uh, you know, what was Dane Cook like a villain? Maybe he was just a guy who just had some comedy that just wasn't certain people's cup of tea. And maybe we were maybe we gave this guy an unfair shake. Maybe he was just a guy who had a certain style and just didn't resonate with us. And we had and, and yet we had to, like, crush him and like like, may, you know, it, these things happen all the time. And those are just that that's an example of a of a of a, of a story we know about. And all of that leads to the fact that we do we do live in a in a moment right now where uh, things are very reactionary. And I think that I think that we all kind of collectively think that we have everyone figured out and we're very quick to just be like, I know the truth about you from the very sliver of information that I get from your public life or your social media presence or whatever it is. And I think that we all have been lulled into this culture by the social media and the internet where we all kind of think that we know everything about everyone and everything. And we're very reactionary in, in our assessments of things. And sometimes those things are accurate. Like, you know, sometimes somebody is a fucking scumbag and they get rightfully called out. And sometimes maybe that's not, necessarily the case and sometimes we just think we know things with very little information and you know to use kind of like a, a reference that's going to just date this episode completely um that the whole like will smith chris rock thing like people were so quick to have reactionary hot takes and opinions on that whole situation and i think everybody who immediately started tweeting their hot takes like every single person regardless of what their opinion was on that time made a fool of everyone because everybody had, you know, there was all these opinions like, Oh, like Will Smith com committed assault and he should be arrested. There was that take. And then there was the take of like, you know, you know, he, he was, was standing up for his wife. He was really just doing what he was defending his woman or whatever. Yeah. And then like over time, people started to analyze the situation a little bit more and people started to maybe realize like, Oh, maybe it's not that simple. Maybe, Maybe there are some complexities to this and, you know, maybe like it's certainly like unprecedented for a person to just get up on stage and slap a man in front of like millions of people. But maybe it's not like he should go to jail for it. Like maybe maybe that's a little extreme. And then there's like all the you know, there's there's like the complexity of like Chris Rock, you know, was mocking her bald head and she has alopecia. So, you know, that's and there's all this context of like culturally there's a there's all these things about like black women being belittled for their hair that makes that joke more significant than it was and it's like then people were talking about how it was ableist because she has alopecia but then like later on it was like oh but also like chris rock chris rock literally is autistic and like he has a condition where he can't understand social cues and so you have a guy going on stage somebody makes a joke not realizing that it's offensive and then a, and then somebody gets on stage and like slaps him and it's like you know maybe there's a little bit of ableism there like there, there's all these complexities to it and I'm, I'm not even giving an opinion on any of these things 
or, or even saying I'm not coming down on either side. But my ultimate point is, is like this is a complex situation with like a million moving parts to it. And yet, like as a society, we just we have just been hardwired to be like must have hot take immediately must get my opinion out there as soon as possible. And then everyone just ends up looking like a fucking idiot like five minutes later because it's like maybe maybe just shut the fuck up and like listen and observe and learn things before you have your weird like I'm Judd Apatow and I'm going to make this weird hypothetical scenario and be like he could have killed him if he had like tripped and fallen and like million dollar babied his neck on a chair like what are you (laughs) talking what are you talking about like what is this weird scenario you're making up to make this point um and yeah i I, like this is this is a big topic and i'm kind of going into a million different places but i guess what i'm ultimately saying is that we live in a very reactionary time and george this story of george harriman is like an anchor point that can really just make you stop and think for a second as you said at the beginning of this Nobody is ever quite what you what they seem to you. And maybe everybody should stop and consider things and realize that, like, almost nothing in this world is a binary. And there's many different details and many different nuances of situations. And um, this is one of the most extreme examples of that, where um, without a certain tiny piece of information, his entire body of work has a completely different context. And then incorporating that one little puzzle piece changes the entire thing and makes it a completely different body of work. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. <laughs> this has been Deep Cuts. If you'd like to find me on the internet, you can do so at HeyDaveBaker.com or on all the socials at xdavebakerx. You can find my books, Everyone is Tulip, Night Hunters, Star Trek, Voyager 7's Reckoning, Action Hospital, Fuck Off Squad, and all of the other ones on on the internets. Uh, Spandrew, where can people find you? You can find me wandering listlessly through the Arizona desert, um, waxing existentially about the complex inner workings of the human condition with just a fucked up weird cat face um and you can't which find one of us on- is crazy which one of us is crazy and which one of us is ignatz i <laughs> I, f- I feel like you're probably you're well size wise you would be ignatz but i feel like you might be crazy cat i'm into it i'm into it uh, and you can't find me on social media because I don't use social media. But if you want to pay your respects to the dear, beloved Papa Pricey, you can go to his website, DAPriceRights.com, where you can get his book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye. You can also follow us on social media, on Facebook, Deep Cuts Podcast. You can join our Facebook group where we talk about the show and make memes and other discussions. The Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. You can follow our Discord server where we also talk about the show and make memes and talk about other things. And uh, you can go there by going to bit.ly.com slash deep cuts discord. You can follow us on Instagram at deep cuts pod, TikTok at mystery treehouse. You can go to our website and click on the shop and you can get some shirts and hats and coffee mugs with deep cuts graphic designs on them. You can uh, get our mystery treehouse investigation agency patch by going to deepcutspod.com and going to the shop. You can also still pick up the simple code tape comic hybrid 
Um, who knows when the fuck this episode is going to come out. But at the time of recording, I just got a new shipment of the tapes in and I have enough stock to ship out to the current people who've bought the tape and have some left over. So there will still be tapes to buy. So if you if you buy the tape, you will likely be able to get it within a you know three or four days. Um, and if not, and the tape continues to sell, then I obviously will also still order more and you'll be able to get it within five or six weeks. Um, it is a cassette release of our nine song Napster musical that also comes with a five page full color comic um, in in the tape. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it. Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com. The George Harriman episode of Deep Cuts was written by Armand Saheli. If you have a penchant for fascinating true stories and deep research and are interested in writing for the show, email us at andrew at boygeniusmedia.com.